At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. This podcast contains adult themes and language. Listener discretion is advised. In the last episode, I talked about how two of the most dangerous men connected to the mafia activities in the Southern Illinois Mafia were from Sykeston, Missouri, the largest and southernmost town in Scott County. Sykeston marks the southwestern point of a nearly equilateral triangle that connects Cairo, the southernmost city in Illinois, with Cape Girardeau, the largest city between St. Louis and Memphis. Before Interstate 55 was constructed on the Missouri side of the river, Route 3 on the Illinois side was used as a route to get materials from Cairo to St. Louis. The two-lane river highway was under constant threat of mafia gangsters who reported to Buster Wartman. Wortman controlled the St. Louis and Southern Illinois Mafia activities and reported for quite some time to the notorious Al Capone who ran the outfit in Chicago. Sykeston brothers George and Art Garner both reported directly to Wortman, doing enforcer work. They murdered, they hijacked trucks, they set businesses on fire, used their violence to extort protection money out of businesses all throughout Southern Illinois. They collected money to be spared violent consequences. They also enforced Wortman's strong-arm network of coin-operated machines. Gangsters owned nightclubs, bars, restaurants, and hotels all up and down southern Illinois, while the Garner brothers, particularly George, terrorized the region. Among the nightclub owners was a man named Buddy Buddy Harris. Virgil Abbott, the grandfather of Mark and Matt Abbott, worked directly for Harris, who, like the Garners, reported to Wortman. It was wild and crazy during this era. Sometimes the crime bled into southeast Missouri quite literally. George Garner, the most feared mobster in Illinois, south of St. Louis, ended up dead in a house owned by the son of a Sykeston judge who happened to be a major drug dealer along with the rest of his family. I'm your host, Bob Miller. You're listening to The Lawless Files. went around the car to the driver's side and opened up the door and uh, we saw Michelle. So Mark Abbott a suspect in this killing? No, sir. He said that his friend might have been a policeman or a sheriff or something like that. And I didn't take but a split second. I said, huh, that's not Mark. I said, that's Mark Abbott nor Matt Abbott were vampire or friends. 
Why was that not done? So he's like, hey man, I saw this murder in the news. They don't know who did it. Let's tell them Josh did it. I don't know. I, I don't know that they were. It seemed like pretty much anything was for sale down there. I, I don't know. At the right price. He said, uh, you know, he said, Bill's been in there long enough. You know, he's made enough money. He says it's about time a younger man gets in there. He said, like you, you can get in there and make some good Paychecks money. from a bullshit They company. never investigated me. They merely put me on trial and told the jury they had. Buster Wortman, George and Art Garner's mob boss, died from cancer in 1968, the same year that former Cape Girardeau man Howard Baker was gunned down in his truck by a machine gun along the highway. Mafia activities will continue through the late 1980s. We'll pick up this episode in the 1970s. In 1970, an article appeared in the Sykes and Standard that questioned whether Lloyd G. Briggs, who owned a home in Birmingham, Alabama, but was raised in Scott County, Missouri, could assume the duties of magistrate judge in Scott County because of, quote, $450 shown subject to recovery dating back to the time Briggs served as circuit clerk, end quote. The article did very little to explain what the $450 entailed, but Briggs did not show up for the swearing-in ceremony. The prosecutor, Tom Gilmore, told the newspaper that Briggs could be sworn in later. Briggs' status as magistrate judge was also questioned because he was living in Alabama at the time. Briggs eventually would take on the magistrate post, then eventually the circuit judge position. In just a few years, this judge's family would go on to run and operate a 10-state drug ring that distributed marijuana, cocaine, and quaaludes. Virgil Abbott is mentioned several times in newspaper articles with his connections to Buddy Buddy Harris and his criminal dealings. Virgil Abbott never did any prison time that I can find, but he did testify favorably for Harris in court testimony according to newspaper articles. But that doesn't mean there weren't some close calls for the Abbott family. In 1971, when Mark and Matt Abbott were just three years old, a bomb blew up in a van parked in the carport of Larry Abbott's house in East Cape Girardeau. Windows in the house were shattered by the impact of the explosion. The truck was owned by Virgil Abbott, but was driven by Larry Abbott and parked at Larry Abbott's house. The Abbots lived in East Cape Girardeau across the river from Cape Girardeau at the time. The bombing happened at 1.30 in the morning. Virgil Abbott told a newspaper reporter he had no idea why someone would do that, adding he was no longer in the coin machine business, though the reporter acknowledged he saw such machines in Virgil Abbott's business. Virgil Abbott and his family moved to Cape Girardeau County in Missouri not long after the explosion. Virgil Abbott and his son Larry 
owned a business called Soundtrack Radio. It sold stereo equipment to farmers for their tractors, as well as 8-tracks. I'm told by a person with family ties to the Abbott family that in addition to the bombing, there were incidents of venomous snakes being left inside their business trucks. Speaking of music and mafia connections, Buddy Buddy Harris created a recording studio where regional celebrity Lou Hobbs recorded his first album. Hobbs, a member of the Rockabilly Hall of Fame, had a regional television show for many years on the CBS affiliate in Cape Girardeau. Harris promised Hobbs in the 1960s that if he performed at his Paradise nightclub for a year, Harris would finance a Memphis recording session. Hobbs told a music writer for the Southern Illinoisan newspaper in 2001 that Harris owned several hundred jukeboxes in a five-state area and that Harris would take the 45 and put it in his machines and ask his waitresses to call in and request Hobbs' song on the radio. Hobbs ended up having a wonderful music career, finding a niche of fame in Europe. He said, quote, If it hadn't been for Buddy Buddy giving me a shot 40 years ago, this would have never happened, end quote. There is another name familiar to many in the Cape Girardeau and Cairo area that is associated with organized crime in the region. That name is Red Doss. He was a jukebox dealer and ran illegal gambling in Cairo. His real name was Vincent Moran Doss. In 1974, he'd been sentenced to 10 years in prison on drug and counterfeiting charges and another five years for aiding in the theft of $8,000 in stolen clothing from Memphis to Cairo. He was also accused of witness tampering and perjury for denying to a grand jury that he tried to sell guns and fake money to an undercover agent. But the judge in the case, Robert McRae Jr. of the U.S. District Court, ordered immediate parole citing Doss's age and family obligations. A few months later, a Cape Girardeau man, long connected to rumors with ties of the Mafia, was the target of a bombing. Nip Kelly, owner of Nip Kelly Trucking and Equipment Company, could give police no reason for the bombing. The explosives were set next to a fireplace and a basement stairwell, according to a UPI report published in the Springfield Newsleader newspaper. The building was under construction and nearly complete. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. In 1976, Bill Farrell was elected sheriff. 
That same year, the Missouri Sheriff's Association elected Farrell as the association's secretary. Farrell began serving as sheriff at the beginning of 1977, filling in for John Dennis, the newly elected state senator. Also that year, David Mann, later a judge in Scott County, was appointed chairman of the Teasdale for Governor campaign in Scott County. Later, Briggs, who is already the magistrate judge, would be reprimanded by the Missouri Supreme Court for aiding Teasdale politically. He was said to have been involved raising money for Teasdale as well as consulting the politician. My source connected to the Briggs drug ring said the Briggs family donated hundreds of thousands of dollars to the Teasdale campaign. In 1977, Briggs acknowledged that Teasdale consulted him about patronage appointments, but Judge Briggs said he didn't believe he violated the canons of judicial ethics. An article that appeared in the Sykeston Daily Standard said some Democrats were calling Briggs the, quote, patronage chief for the 10th Congressional District, unquote. Briggs and Teasdale denied that term. But while this was going on, Judge Briggs' wife, Juanita Briggs, was appointed the state license fee agent for Sykeston by Governor Teasdale. My source with connections to the Briggs family told me Juanita and the Briggs drug dealers would use access to license plate to help with their drug dealing activities. Teasdale would later appoint Briggs from magistrate judge to the post of circuit judge over the former governor, Warren Hearns. Teasdale made the appointment despite an ongoing investigation into Briggs's partisan political activities. A newspaper report stated that in one instance, Briggs flew from Sykeston to Kansas City to personally deliver an envelope containing more than 40000 in checks collected at a fundraiser. The mid to late 1970s marked the beginning of the Briggs family drug trade. Remember, the mafia activities were still going strong during that time period just across the Mississippi River. My source with knowledge of the Briggs operation told me that the family wasn't directly involved with the mafia, but they did have connections with George Garner and with Tom Brock, the chop shop operator who would later repair sheriff's cars, according to other sources. The Briggs source told me a story about how, before Bill Farrell became sheriff but was working as an investigator under John Dennis, warned Paul Briggs that he needed to get out of the city of Sykeston. Paul Briggs then purchased a house in the mini farms area outside of Sykeston city limits, which contained a barn. And that barn is where the Briggs family would temporarily store big drug shipments, including large bales of marijuana. In February of 1980, a Dexter, Missouri businessman named Jack Estes, who was 47 years old, was brutally murdered. Estes owned a business called Saveway LP Gas, Inc., and was the past president of the Missouri LP Gas Association. He was also the former president of the Chamber of Commerce in Dexter and was a director of a country club in the small town less than 25 miles from Sykeston. Jack Estes' wife had arrived home around 11.30 p.m. on a Friday night after visiting her sick mother in Cape Girardeau and found the door to the home open, according to a report from the UPI News Service. She had not only found the door open, but saw her husband's car was missing. She called her husband's name, but got no answer. 
So she called the police, and when they entered the home, they found Estes' body in a basement recreation room. Estes had been over the head three times with a vase that had broken on the floor, and then had his throat slashed three times. The autopsy revealed a cracked skull, but the slashed throat was determined to be the cause of death. At the time, police speculated that Estes perhaps surprised an intruder, but I've been told he owed a gambling debt. I've not been able to confirm that. Estes's stolen car was found burning near St. Louis in Bridgeton, Missouri. A 20-year-old found in connection with the car refused to talk to police. So that was. Finally, he talked me into waking John up and talking, damn it, give him the money. Just a reminder this is my source, Virginia, who I talked to about the gangster activities from back in the day. She worked as a bartender and waitress at different places and knew Art Garner very well and knew George Garner a little bit. That's when I began to open my eyes. Yeah, okay. So th- that that payment w- went for protection to gangsters, yeah, or protection money. yeah. But when the state cops came or whatever, you they didn't have a choice. They came in right. They usually knew you were gonna get right. Is that right? Yeah. That's interesting. So Jack Estes was murdered in February of 1980. In April of 1980, Paul Briggs, the son of the magistrate judge who we've talked about earlier, and Paul's wife Cynthia were indicted on counterfeiting charges by a grand jury in Mississippi. My anonymous source told me that Briggs unknowingly obtained the counterfeit money from George Garner during a drug deal. In October of 1980, while Paul Briggs was in prison, On a counterfeiting charge, George Garner, the Mafia's most feared Southern Illinois tyrant, was found dead, burned inside Paul Briggs' house in the Mini Farms area. The official word is that Garner's own explosion was unintentionally triggered and it blew up in Garner's face. Garner inhaled flames and he died as a result. He was 57 years old. A key to the Briggs home was found in Garner's back pocket. And according to my source, Bill Farrell delivered the key to Paul Briggs while Briggs was in prison on the counterfeiting charges.
Anything else you think I might find interesting? I, I don't really know all the oh questions. Oh my god, I could write a book. Right <laughs> I bet. Yeah. I bet. I'm most interested in um, kind of the Briggs family drug ring and how that was tied. Yeah, I don't know yeah. anything about that mess because I wasn't involved with those people, didn't know them. Yeah. Right. But the fact that uh, George died in that explosion leads me to believe that there was something there, but I don't know what that well, connection is. Well, what happened was that stuff they use, it explodes. If, if a furnace comes on, clicks on, telephone rings, uh, hot water heater clicks on. Yeah. Not long after George Garner's death, authorities announced that George Garner had killed Estes. Dexter's police chief said Garner's fingerprints were left at the scene of the murder. Apparently, Garner had left prints on the abandoned car and on the lamp in the Estes' home, according to news reports. It does seem odd that this was only discovered after Garner's death. The St. Louis Post-Dispatch reported that there were no signs of forced entry into Estes' home, but said the murder victim may have had $10,000 on him. My source said the Briggs family and the, the entire drug operation uh, had no direct link with the mafia. But the Garners were independent contractors who would do almost any job for the right price. My source said Estes was behind on gambling debts. At that point, when Garner died, it was not publicly known that the Briggs family was moving drugs in and out of Sykeston. So as we consider whether the Mafia had infiltrated Southeast Missouri, this is about as close as we come to proof, at least as far as I'm aware. George and Art Garner both were from Sykeston. Art lived there and owned a hotel in Sykeston. George Garner killed a Dexter businessman, once the director of the Chamber of Commerce, slashing his throat, allegedly from debts he owed. Remember, Maureen Hughes reported in her book that prominent cotton farmers and business leaders from southeast Missouri were known to cross the river to partake in gambling. So just to reiterate, in one home in Scott County, we had an attempted arson, a dead one-time mafia hitman trying to set fire to the house of a judge's son who was in prison for counterfeiting. That's how the life of the murderous and arsonist mobster George Garner came to an end. The same year, 1980, is when the Missouri Supreme Court ousted Judge Lloyd Briggs from office, citing his involvement in the Teasdale campaign. 
the state's highest court ruled unanimously that Briggs had, quote, excessive involvement in partisan political activities, unquote. By 1984, four years after he'd been charged in his counterfeit case, Paul Briggs was out of prison and helping his family in the drug trade. Court documents and media reports say the ring had been in existence since the late 1970s. Paul Briggs had been selling drugs long before that. He had become a pilot. The Briggs family was struggling with their restaurant Two Tonys, and Paul Briggs, according to my source, introduced his parents to the cash that could be made by selling drugs. At some point between 1980 and 1984, the feds began investigating the Briggs family and the drug ring that they were involved in. One source, who wishes to remain anonymous for fear of retaliation, but not the same source I've been referring to earlier, told me that Juanita Briggs, the judge's wife, wanted to purchase a truck and horse trailer from the source. Not really needing to sell his vehicles, this source set a very high price, and Juanita Briggs asked to borrow the truck and trailer overnight to make sure she liked how it handled. The Briggses returned the truck and trailer a day later, a little later than expected, and they paid cash for the truck and trailer. Hours after the transaction, a federal agent arrived at the source's house and asked about the truck and trailer transaction. The federal agents had been tracking the trailer as part of a drug investigation, and in fact, it had transported drugs across several states. According to my source, the agent was not accusing him of being involved in the drug trade, but was inquiring about how the Briggs paid for the vehicle. The agent also knew that the source had connections to the sheriff's department because the source at time had volunteered for the department. The federal agent told the source that they had not yet informed the sheriff of the investigation and they wanted to keep it that way. During this same general time period, drugs, particularly cocaine, were being consumed by many in Sykeston's white-collar class. Addicts come in all sorts of ages, sizes, and economic backgrounds. But it wasn't just the drugs that were the problem. One source told me that a childhood friend of hers was 13 when she started going to cocaine parties in the 1980s that included prominent men in Scott County. In April of 1984, the St. Louis Post-Dispatch published a story with the headline, quote, Three drug suspects seized near ex-judge's home, unquote. It was a federal sting and it caught the Scott County prosecutor Robert Fuchs off guard. The local prosecutor said he knew nothing of the investigation and was learning about the bust in the newspaper like everyone else. Eight days later, the Post-Dispatch ran a front-page story about the indictment of a former Sykeston judge's wife and sons. They had been charged with conspiracy and distribution of cocaine, marijuana, and quaaludes. Quaaludes were initially patented to treat insomnia and used as a sedative and muscle relaxer. It became very addictive and it was abused as a club drug and even used by predators on women as a date rape drug. In fact, it's the drug Bill Cosby is accused of using to sexually assault women without their consent. Quailu production was banned in 1983. The St. Louis Post-Dispatch kept its focus on Sykeston and the Briggs drug ring. The newspaper followed up with a story about how rumors were swirling around Sykeston. The story was picked up by newspapers all across the country. The story reported, quote, The whispering started after three people were caught with cocaine behind a former judge's house. As a grand jury began investigating, the whispering got louder. The whispering said public figures in this little city of 17,000 people were involved. It said county officials were covering up a drug scandal. It said that somewhere under a lock and key, there was a list of names. 
The newspaper didn't print a word of the rumors. The sheriff wouldn't talk. The rumors finally got so bad that three insurance companies took out a newspaper ad warning residents that they weren't covered for slander under a homeowner's policy. Unquote. The managing editor of the Sykeston Daily Standard insisted no such list existed. The indictment did not name the judge specifically, but noted the family had distributed at least 1,000 pounds of marijuana and cocaine in six states over six years. Other articles quoted it as 10 states. One of Judge Briggs's sons, the one most responsible for laundering the family's drug money, apparently took his own life once the family was indicted. The judge was eventually charged and sentenced to three years in tax fraud. He was disbarred. So Judge Briggs, doing political favors for the governor, whose wife and sons were buying and distributing drugs in as many as 10 states, lost nearly everything. He lost his job, his reputation, and an adult son. His entire family ended up in prison. It was one of the biggest stories in the state of Missouri at the time. The drug trade didn't just stop in Sykeston. Who filled the void and the gaps? The Briggs family owned a restaurant that looked to be legitimate called Two Tonys. They gained control of the local license bureau. They had access to planes and pilots. What became of the drug trade when they were busted? Before their epic fall, the Briggs family enriched themselves on the drug trade. They hid all their money in all sorts of banking accounts and assets. They paid cash for houses, went on expensive overseas vacations, and paid off politicians. So what happened when the Briggs operation went down? Who stepped up with that supply? And what happened when George Garner died? Again, the drug trade certainly didn't stop. In fact, it got worse. But who became the new muscle, the thugs who made the threats and occasionally carried them out? Who became the agents that were paid for protection? Did all that underground activity dry up? Or did it provide other lucrative opportunities? The Briggs drug ring ended in the mid-1980s, but cocaine kept pouring into Sykeston's West End. One source told me that an undercover agent from St. Louis came down on one occasion and refused to work in the city again because he felt it was too dangerous. This agent had worked previously in East St. Louis, one of the most notoriously dangerous cities in the Midwest. So this agent was willing to work in East St. Louis, but not Sykeston. Someone pulled a gun on him on the first night. Meanwhile, in the early to mid-1990s, meth became more popular, and Missouri developed a reputation as the meth capital of the United States, and southeast Missouri was infamous for methamphetamine use and distribution. Many, if not most, of the major meth dealers in the speed bump files were from Scott County, particularly from the tiny village of Commerce and also from Sykeston. Southeast Missouri and the Kansas City region were known as two of the meth hotspots in the so-called meth capital. By 1990, the SEMO Drug Task Force was created and Bill Farrell would help organize the effort. He was treasurer of the entity and kept tight bookkeeping records according to one person I talked to with knowledge. The first major drug bust by the Drug Task Force was a huge bust of a motorcycle gang known as the Pharaohs. This was in 1991, one year before Michelle Lawless's murder. Newspaper articles from the time quoted officers saying as much as half of the region's meth supply was cut off as a result of this raid. This was even before the major meth epidemic took hold, but it was growing in popularity at the time. 
So if the officer's statements were true, it did not take long for the supply chain to repair itself. In just two or three years, the area was saturated with meth hauled in from trucks from Southern California. Brian Conklin, who you heard from earlier in the podcast, told me he sold cocaine to doctors and lawyers for top dollar, making so much money from wealthy individuals that he could afford to give away drugs to his friends. He told me that his supplier from East Prairie, a woman by the name of Dixie Counts, obtained a four-foot by four-foot shipment of cocaine. It took them almost a year to sell it all. Counts was from East Prairie, just outside of Scott County. She was eventually busted around the same time of the speed bump operation, but was not officially part of the federal conspiracy case. Counts was busted with a huge stockpile of weapons as well. And according to Conklin, Dixie Counts was Kevin Williams' initial supplier, maybe even a distant relative. But from what I've been able to tell, Dixie Counts was the original major meth boss in southeast Missouri, at least in that area of the late 80s and early 90s. It wouldn't be long before Kevin Williams and others would learn that they could buy larger quantities of meth in Southern California and cash in just like Dixie Counts did. By 1994, Williams and others were rolling in money. They were buying meth in such quantities they could fill five-gallon buckets and bury them for hiding. There were car chases with gunshots, there were fights, drug dealers were buying motorcycles, and meanwhile, hundreds of people were getting addicted to meth, one of the most dangerously addictive drugs in the world an epidemic that has generational effects. Around that same time, federal agents began a fraud investigation against Glenn Farrell, Kevin Williams' old boss and owner of the property adjacent to where Michelle was murdered. And to refresh your memory, Bill Farrell wrote a letter of support to the judge in Glenn Farrell's fraud case. Three months after a jury convicted Josh Keezer of murder, Kevin Williams was caught with meth outside of a Cape Girardeau hotel. We've been over this. As discussed in previous episodes, Williams called his wife, who then took a money bag to Glenn Farrell's house. Glenn Farrell, described by Kevin Williams in testimony as his very best friend at the time, informed the police about the money, and then Operation Speed Bump began with the Drug Enforcement Agency getting involved. And, of course, there's the Abbott boys and their father, who were involved in buying large quantities of meth from California and helping to bring it back home. Mark and Matt Abbott both served time over their drug dealing. Their father, Larry Abbott, did not. The man whose van was blown up in his carport in 1971 was a free man in 2000 when he pulled out a briefcase of cash and told Rick Walter it might be time for a younger sheriff to start making money. He was a free man when he allegedly, according to an investigative report, approached Robert Taco Mancillas with Bill Farrell about disposing of the weapon that killed Michelle Lawless. So is all of this connected? The Mafia's grip on Southern Illinois ended in the mid-1980s as far as I can tell. That was around the same time that the Briggs drug operation was discovered and brought down by the feds. The question is how connected was Virgil and Larry Abbott to the players that remained? The question is what players were spared from the Briggs operation, what relationships carried on, and what players took on new roles after the judge, his wife, and two adult sons were locked up and after another took his own life. The drug situation only got worse after the Briggs family was busted, after Buster Wortman died, and the mafia folded. West Sykeston became a cocaine-dealing hub where undercover agents were afraid to go. Scott County became a hot spot for methamphetamine. The question is, why? As we ponder that question, I want to take a trip down memory lane 
and replay some sound that you've heard in previous episodes of the podcast. Said that his friend might have been a policeman or a sheriff or something like that. I don't care if it's on the record or not, and, and I can't prove it, but Bill was kind of a kingpin uh, in Scott County for a lot of illegal activities going on. I think he, he was a crooked sheriff. There's no, there's no question about it in my mind. I can see him being tied with Larry Abbott's mom and dad, getting persuasion from them, or Larry. You know, I've, I've got tickets for it. Went towards one corner, and I said, You got a ticket? Make a phone call. Give me that, I'll throw it away. Sure. Yeah. So you would get tickets. Huh? You would you would get tickets, give them to Larry, and he would take care of them for you. Yeah, a couple times I, I got a ticket, and Larry, I got pulled over on the parking lot. You didn't give a motherfucker no ticket in my parking lot. Larry knew people would call, and they'd hey, just go ahead and throw that away. No patrol cars because he did not want to embarrass anybody. He didn't want to embarrass this guy. So no patrol cars. Everybody had to have uh, under plane cars or their own vehicles. Um, so we were waiting at Minor Police Department while I was standing outside in front of the police department. He drove, the sheriff drove by. And he waved to me. I waved to him. And he drove, of course, he, his residence was just north of where we was going to serve the search warrant. And he waved at us, waved, waved at me. A little bit later, he gave us, he gave the call. He said, go ahead and serve the search warrant. Um, I rode with the, the, the DEA agent, the one that I had went to the academy with. And on the way, um, I asked him, I said, what do you think we're really going to find here now? We got there. And when we all came in, he looks up. And he just looked up and he said, hey guys, what's going on? Come on in. He wasn't surprised. He wasn't shocked. Uh, like he was expecting us. We did not find anything. He, was, he wasn't worried about it at, the, at all. You know, a lot of us there that night, we had our own conclusions of what had happened. Well, no, it was just, you know, it was just the way things were done. And there, were, there was a lot of money and a lot of powerful people that were uh, either directly or indirectly involved When we got talking about the conversation of Josh Kiesler being the one that done it, Abbott uh, just looked at me and just kind of laughed a little bit, and he said, "Yeah, they got they got the wrong guy for that." He said, "I took care of that bitch," and I'll never forget what he said. A bullshit company down there called Morley Paving and Excavating. It was not registered with the Secretary of State. It did not have a business license in Scott County. And it was all bound up with Norm Lambert, Bill Farrell, Kevin Williams, and a whole bunch of other people were getting paychecks from a bullshit company. I don't know whether it's ever been known whether Bill openly admitted knowing, to the, knowing the Abbots. Uh, I... I know for a fact that he did, okay. and the Abbots were involved in a lot of drugs, drug trafficking. Uh, basically, I guess what I'm trying to get at is, is when push comes to shove, uh, there was a lot of protection there. So it was in Bill's best interest too to see that this got pinned on somebody that didn't, that didn't do it. Uh, you know, earlier when we were talking about 
you know, that there was a lot of corruption and widespread corruption in Scott County, that, that it seemed that, that Kevin Williams and Bill Farrell had a relationship that, that you know, Kevin was kind of given free reign down there to do his distribution. And I don't know, you know, like I said, I have no direct knowledge of it. It was, I heard it hearsay from a friend, but it was a friend that was also involved in business dealings with them. And I think Kevin had bragged to him about having, you know, a, a relationship that was where, where he could pretty much act with impunity down because there. Kevin has a construction company or, uh, you know, he would, he does, he had a trucking company and at the time he had was turning a building down in the city of minor and he told me that bill farrell pulled up on the on his site job site and told him he said you know you're the number one suspect uh, in the lawless case this, this is again this is what kevin relayed to me he said uh, bill told him that he was the number one suspect in the lawless case and that i Rick walter was after him and um, at that time, it was early enough on that we hadn't built up any suspects. What was Kevin and Farrell doing together? Why are they talking to one another? I don't have a clue. How do you know that Farrell was calling Williams then? He told me he did. Do you think Bill Farrell, because the way he acted when I picked out that car in that picture, he was guilty from that day on in Bill Farrell's eyes. So who ramrodded the investigation? Bill Farrell, you know. How do you know Bill Farrell ramrodded the investigation? I would think he did. I don't know for sure. He's the one I talked to. These interviews you say I had with her, they were with Bill Farrell. I don't believe they were with her. She'd just stand on the sidelines. Okay. And Kevin has told you that Farrell has called him? Yeah, he's called him a few times. Talked about this case? Yeah, he apologizes for what Rick Walter's doing to him. I always thought it was because I believe that the reason she was murdered was that she was working, quote, undercover, unquote, for the sheriff at that time, investigating meth dealing in the Cape Girardeau area. I believe that because when I asked Mark why he slash they did it, I asked if she snitched on him, and he said no, that she was working for the sheriff. I asked how he slash they killed her, and he told me that he, quote, put a bullet in her head, unquote. Kevin's sister mentioned it yeah. to, to Gayla, who then mentioned it, showed the Facebook message to Kevin, who got very upset about this. He, he then called up Bill Farrell in fr front of Gayla. Basically, he calls and says, hey, we need to meet. And Bill Farrell says, sure. And they go to meet in a parking lot at the Montgomery Bank in Sidestown. After, so you were actually fired from the task force before you went to testify. Okay. Okay. So, so how did that, how did that come to your attention? Who told you that? Um, I, Roger Fields, the assistant chief, called me in and said they want you off, and uh, that was it. He just said that you couldn't be trusted. They didn't give me any any rhyme or reason why, <clears throat> but it had to be probably within five to ten days of my conversation with him. Tell me about Larry. What do you know about him? Well, they ran that uh, convenience store down in Scott City. Him and his wife ran the wig and clothing shop downtown. Um they had gone to the same church as us, and that's kind of where I knew him from. They ran that trailer park down in, in Scott City where they rent a trailer house out, and that's where we learned a lot of information. But once again, when we were down there working on cases, it, it just kind of fell on deaf ears because 
uh, it was in Scott County and, and Bill Farrell was a sheriff. And uh, even then at that time, we all knew, you know, you didn't go down there and do anything if, you know, Bill Farrell did not want you in his county. So mm-hmm. and didn't know if it was because he was just covering for people or if he just wanted to know everything that was going on in the county, but we just knew that uh, we weren't going down there. Uh, we figured that cases that we did talk to people about it got right back to the bad guys so i'm not saying how it got back there but uh, (laughs) we figured that's how it happened that letter i called sheriff farrell myself told him who i was asked him if he received the letter from al lois and he said he did i said well would you like me to come down and you know talk to me about this he said no there's no need he said, I don't need to hear anything from you. I've got my conviction. Case closed. That was it? That was it. Quote, when asked if he was asked to hide or get rid of a gun from Mark Abbott, he stated that he was accused of hiding something. That four or five years earlier, Bill Farrell and Larry Abbott came by and accused him of that same thing. That's when I went to Bill Farrell afterwards. And sat in his office, just him and I, and he more or less leaned back in his chair with his, with his hands crossed like I am now, and I told him exactly what went on, what I was told. And he just plainly told me, he said, no, he said, uh, we've got the right guys, the case closed as far as I'm concerned. I'm your host, Bob Miller. You're listening to The Lawless Files. Thank you for listening to The Lawless Files, a production of Leadhound Publishing, LLC. The Lawless Files is hosted and edited by Bob Miller and co-produced by Bob Miller and me, Tyler Grafe. We'd like to thank Jacob Wiegand, Jeff Long, Rachel Long, Jesse Dew, Kara Kaminsky, Chuck Kaminsky, Allison Miller, Shawnee Graves, Laura Ritter, Bobby Clubs, MJ DeGraff, Ben Matthews, and Mason Dukacek, who helped voice the court transcripts. Again, please go to thelawlessfiles.com and subscribe. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.